Today's sermon text is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor and pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Clarence. Um, I just want to say to, uh, if there's any, any folks in here today who serve in law enforcement, we love you. Uh, we are grateful for you. Uh, we really are. Um, I know there are several of you because I've talked to you over the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for these messages um, yes, we are taking a break from Philippians today. We're almost done with Philippians, but um, I was telling uh, somebody this last week that I don't remember. I don't remember the. I guess it's, I was trying to think when was it? When was the last time that I felt so much sadness for such a long time? And the only thing I can remember is after nine eleven. After 9-11, we all were just mortified by what we saw. And the last uh, couple of weeks, I, I literally, I have woken up, like many of you, um, every single morning with a pit in my stomach. Um, just so sad. Last week, we came together on Sunday evening and for those of you who could make it, man, thank you for coming. Um, I think we'll all agree it was awkwardly wonderful. Um, I've never led a lament service before. I've never done that. And so we got together and we put a mic up front and took a risk and said, hey, if you've got something to say, say it. And some folks shared their hearts. Some folks shared some stories, said some prayers. And... I left really not having, not really under, get, wonder, I was wondering, how did, how did our people feel about this? Did they feel this was helpful? I didn't know. I really didn't know. And since then, I've had several conversations with people who told me how profoundly powerful it was. Um, I'm grateful for that. And then we get home that night and we see the protest on the Hernando de Soto Bridge. And so I see our hearts swinging back and forth. I see us embracing lament, mourning with those who mourn, really trying hard to empathize. And I really thank God for so many of you here who are, who are going against the grain of your nature and are, are looking more closely at the stories of people who are wounded and you're you're trying to get in that and feel that. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. I really am. It's not clean. It's not easy. It is messy. We don't say the right things. We don't do the right things. 
If you've ever been in a situation where somebody is hurting badly in your presence, you don't know what to do. You're just there and you might say something dumb. You might put your foot in your mouth. But I thank God that I think that our church is showing some signs that we've got some grace. I'm thankful for that. But as soon as we get home, I see social media erupt. People are, some people are repulsed and revolted by what they saw on the bridge. I'm not going to shame you. That's not what this sermon's about today. There were those who were rejoicing at what happened. And I mean blacks and whites. There were black people who have said that I was afraid to go to work the next day because I might be looked down on for what happened on the bridge. And I just wish that they were quiet and didn't do that so that my life wouldn't be interrupted by this. I don't want to be persecuted for what they did. How people say that? There are people, and there are a number of stories and comments that I can draw from. People who are celebrating it, people who are condemning it, and people who are in the middle going, I don't know what to do with that. Whatever you're feeling, I want you to know that that's a good thing. Our feelings help us to look under the hood of our lives and see what's really going on in a deep way. Our feelings tell us something. Our strong feelings betray our strong beliefs. Beliefs we may never challenge. Beliefs we may not even know are there. But when we feel strongly about something, it shows us something very deeply held in our lives, our convictions, our biases. That's helpful. I can look back on last Sunday night and see glimmers of beauty. I can see that no one was injured. I'm thankful for that. I'm watching the news and I'm wondering, oh my God, Lord, please don't let Memphis be the next Baltimore, the next L.A., the next Baton Rouge. And I see our interim police chief lead magnificently Sunday night, stepping into a tense situation where only days before officers had been assassinated by a sniper, he walked into a public place, walked into a situation like that, that was tense, that was hard, where there were no easy answers because we all want that to be that way. We want there to be a clear set of wrongs and a clear set of rights. And in situations like that, it's just not clear. And so we don't know how to feel. We don't know what to think. And so we just sort of bottle it up or maybe behind our keyboards, we say things that are unfortunate. So I can see some beauty. But I want to challenge you to... Take a 30,000-foot view of where we are right now, the church. And I want you to see the demonic activity in our lives as we swing to lament and worship. And then that night we are greeted with the strong temptation maybe to hate and loathe. I want you to see that this morning we're gathered here to worship Jesus. And maybe because we're all a bunch of American evangelical triumphalists, we're hoping that maybe the pain of the past can be a few days behind us and we can move on now because lamenting, who wants to do that? And again, we are faced with the assassination of more officers. This is ugly. This is demonic. And I don't mean just the act of killing, although that is destroying the life of someone, no matter their story, who is made in the image of God. But it's helping us to look deep inside of ourselves if we have the courage to look deep down. We're going to be tempted to attach political ideology to our feelings. And I challenge you, if you do that, you are slapping the hand of the Spirit in your life. Don't allow political ideology to contaminate what you're feeling, what the Spirit might show you deep down. And I'm talking about the right and the left, not one of the, not just one. My God. Today I want to talk a few, for a few minutes about 
how to live through this. I don't speak as an authority. I don't, man. I feel very, very unprepared for this. But in my estimation, on Sunday, July 17th, this is how I look at things. This is how I look at things. I want to talk about what I think God wants to do inside of us through this. What he wants to do inside of us. I had Clarence read out of Matthew chapter 4 and then Matthew chapter 5 for a reason. When Matthew wrote his gospel, we think that he was writing to the church in Syria and in Palestine. Modern day Israel and modern day Syria. There's a smattering of churches in that region. And these were churches that needed training on what it looked like to follow Jesus. What does it look like to be a servant of the living Jesus? And so Matthew put together a book, 28 chapters, in which he chose only five of Jesus' sermons. Only five. Jesus probably preached hundreds, but he chose five. And he leads off with the first one in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and that sermon spans three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But there's a context for Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew 4 leads up to it. Really, Matthew 1 through 4. So bear with me for a moment as I just set the stage. Jesus didn't appear out of nowhere like like the USS Enterprise, beamed him down to Judea, and he started preaching. He emerged from a story. Here's the story as Matthew puts it. There was a man named John the Baptist who was preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he was preaching, you can read about this in Matthew 3, he was, as he was preaching, there were people from all over Judea who were coming to him and gathering at the river Jordan, and he was baptizing them in the river Jordan, commanding them to repent because someone mightier than he was on his way. And this person who was mightier than he, the Messiah, he says was going to bring a winnowing fork and was going to be the judge of the world. He brought fire. Watch out, John was saying. Get your hearts ready for him. Align your behavior with God's kingdom because when the king comes, you better be following him. You better be aligned with him. And so he said, this savior who's coming, this judge who is coming, I'm not even fit to carry his shoes. So don't worship me. Get ready for him. All of a sudden, Jesus comes down to the river. John sees him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's expecting Jesus maybe to unleash fire and brimstone. And Jesus says instead, I would like you to baptize me, please. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew that we were so broken that he had to come and literally take our place. It wasn't enough that Jews were being water baptized. Jesus had to take their place, be baptized for them, live in this broken world for them, It's the most beautiful, cosmic um, illustration of empathy that we could ever see. I will enter into the brokenness of your world. I will live under God's law and fulfill God's law. I will teach you God's ways. I will submit to a baptism and repent on your behalf. I will do it all because you just can't. You are empty-handed just like we just sang. There's nothing you bring to the table that will fix this mess. Nothing. You need me. And so Jesus submitted to baptism. And as he was coming out of the water, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven shouted, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. After the Spirit rests on Jesus, the Spirit leads him away from the water into the wilderness where he spends 40 days having no food, not eating. 
40 days. And he is tempted by Satan himself. Satan tempts him. In Jesus' weakest moments, Satan approaches Jesus and tells Jesus, turn these stones to bread. I can tell that you're hungry. And Jesus dismisses him with the word of God. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Tempting Jesus. Do you depend on God or do you depend on yourself? Then he tempted him again. He tempted him again. He said, if you really are who you say you are, now he's messing with Jesus' identity. Maybe in the back of Jesus' mind, he can hear people saying, I really don't believe in him. He's not legit. He couldn't be the Messiah. Look at him. And Satan tells him, throw yourself down from here because the Bible says that God will protect you. His angels will bear you up. And Jesus summarily dismissed him again. Do not put the Lord God to the test. Do not. So Satan's testing him with his God dependence. Satan's testing him with his identity. And then Satan tempts him one last time. One last time he says, hey, listen, you can avoid the cross. This is the implication. I think this is what was going on here. You can avoid the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. Just bow down to me and I'll give you what you want. All authority over planet earth. You don't have to pay the price. You can make things right the easy way. Yeah, maybe you have to compromise a little bit and get on the dark side. But you get all the kingdoms of the earth and you get to rule it all. Just this once, bow down to me. And we know what Jesus did. He rejected Satan's temptation. And Satan left to come back at another opportune time. This is what Jesus experienced. Anointed by the Spirit, the Spirit led him here to test Jesus' God dependence, his identity in his Father. And whether or not he will pick up weapons to make God's ways happen or follow God's ways to make God's ways happen. I think this epitomizes the struggle that all of us are in. I really do. I think Satan is wearing us out. He wants us to find our identity in ourselves and our own strength. He wants us to use the demonic weapons of our world to try to make godly things happen. We see this all over planet earth right now. From men who think that the world will be better if I can shoot a police officer. My world will be better if I can do that. Or my world will be better if we can topple the Turkish government. Our world will be, will be better. The, our people's lives will be enhanced if I run over and destroy the lives of men, women, and children at an Independence Day celebration. This is the lie that we are all being tested with. We can make this world better through some of the ugliest, most demonic devices at our disposal. And my friends, it is not just the act of killing that is demonic. Jesus says that it's the heart behind it that's just as demonic. The anger the fury, the racism, the meanness that fuels our social media posts. If I can clog up Facebook with enough conservative or liberal rhetoric, I can make the world better. People will change. At least it may allow me to blow off some steam. I can go off on some people who I disagree with. Our hearts, man, they are so ugly. They are so ugly. And that is what has made me so sad the last few weeks, to see God's children, to see people who are in union with Christ through faith. And because we're in union with Christ, you and I are one in the Spirit. 
mistreating one another, debasing our relationships. I have watched relationships end the last two weeks, and the fault line was politics. Oh my God. Oh my God. And so, what does Jesus do when he comes out of the wilderness? He hears that John the Baptist is in jail. And he begins to preach the same stuff John the Baptist is preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Leave your ways. Abandon your biases. Abandon the way that you were raised in. Abandon it all and align yourself with me. Allow me to be the person, Jesus says, who will shape your belief system who will shape your ideas, who will shape your worldview, who will shape your politics, who will shape your marriage, who will shape your parenting, who will shape your friendships. Allow me to be the one who shapes everything about you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is a king's rule, a king's authority. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. God's authority is among you. Submit to it. Yield to it. You know what the Bible calls this? The gospel. The gospel. Jesus is Lord. We repent. We submit to Jesus as our king. That is the gospel. That is the good news that we no longer have to live under the rule of our affections and our addictions and our sinfulness and the thoughts and uh, and behaviors of other people around us. We can now live under the gentle, kind, loving, truthful rule of God Almighty. That's the gospel. That is the good news. And so what does that look like to be shaped by Jesus? What does it look like to be submitted to Jesus? And that's where Matthew 5 picks up. The first sermon that Matthew records, he shows us what it looks like to be submitted to Jesus. He shows us what we're signing up for when we say, Okay, Jesus, I'm yours. A ton of evangelical Americans can't connect these dots. I don't say that in judgment. I say that, I mourn that. That there are so many people who have been raised in the church who biblically and spiritually are bankrupt. We can't connect the dots here. I think it's incredibly ironic that our southern evangelicalism We've had more Bible studies than you can shake a stick at. And people can't get along on social media. That's insane to me. And it's sin. It's sin. Words designed to hurt. Words fashioned to shame. When did that ever work with you? When your mom or your dad did that with you, when did, when did that work? When your boss does that with you, when your husband or your wife does that with you, does that ever draw your heart to Jesus? Does that make you want to change? Does that make you want to second guess and analyze your deeply held beliefs? No. It alienates us, it pushes us away. And I grieve this. I grieve this. And I hope you will grieve this with me if you're not yet. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28 and 29, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's good stuff. Paul expounds on that in the next verse in 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, the people that Jesus saved, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. 
So the people who can say, yep, that's me, the Spirit moved into my life and saved me. Guess what we should also be saying? The Spirit is shaping me into the image of Jesus. What is the image of Jesus? Go with me, if you would, to Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to be shaped by the master? This. This. Some people call this the Beatitudes. I think that's unfortunate because a lot of people think that what Jesus is saying here is in order to be saved, you've got to be poor in spirit. That's not what he's saying here. What I think he's saying is, and a ton of theologians behind me would also say, is that Jesus is saying this, that if you follow me and submit to me as your Lord, here's what you can expect to happen in your life if you really let the Spirit get a hold of you. You will become poorer and poorer in spirit. You will become needy of God. You will become less of a Pharisee. You will be less judgmental. And you will be in tune with the own depravity of your heart. It's in this same sermon that Jesus said that before you take the the, the toothpick, the stick, the twig out of somebody else's eye, take the log out of your own. Do you have a growing awareness, my friends, of your poverty of spirit? Pharisees tend to point out others' spiritual poverty. That person is so morally bankrupt. How uncivilized that group acted. That person's politically deceived. That person's not very objective and is totally biased. Wow, they have been hoodwinked by the far left. Wow, they have been hoodwinked by the far right. Wow, they have been hoodwinked by the moderates. You... Those folks are intentionally subversive and evil. The poverty of spirit that that person claims to have had was left at an altar call years ago. Many of us, we come to Christ thinking in the Christian South that what we need is a tweak from Jesus. Our lives are generally pretty good, right? We've got it together. Our kids are going to school, making honor roll. Marriage is surviving, enjoying some Netflix shows. We have a decent job. I'm pretty happy. I got some friends, had a good weekend. I wasn't weakened by the weekend. Um, Christianity, beyond the built-in fire insurance, for a lot of people in the Christian South, is a wonderful hobby with our church potluck dinners, our youth groups, our Bible studies, and our outreach volunteer activities. But they who are poor in spirit are a dying breed who hold their lives up to God's word and examine themselves and cultivate an increasing conviction of sins and thus a growing affection for Jesus, a need for Jesus. They are a dying breed. They are the ones, though, who are poor in spirit and they know that as repulsive as somebody else might be, that inside of themselves they have a need for Jesus that's far greater. This is what it is to be poor in spirit. This is what it looks like to be shaped by the living God. This is what it looks like. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed. Keep in mind that when Jesus says blessed, he's saying, he basically, basically saying happy are those people. This isn't bad news. It is a really, really good place to be 
to know that I am poor in spirit and I have a need for God that will drive me deep into his heart. It is a good thing. If I'm not poor in spirit, I don't need God. All I need is a tweak. You need massive cosmetic work, but I need a tweak. That's what not being poor in spirit looks like. There are many who claim allegiance to Jesus who it seems would prefer that those who aren't properly mourning just shut up. Quit making noise. Quit being dramatic. Open your eyes, some might say. Your pain is probably a figment of your imagination. And then there are those who recoil at the thought of being in pain. That's many of us, sometimes me. To mourn is ugly and painful and not user-friendly. We want to rejoice. We want to feel happy. Or at least not feel pain. So when brothers and sisters in Jesus are saying that we are hurting, brothers and sisters, that some people are feel they are just being melodramatic, we have little empathy. My friends, this isn't about being right or wrong. This is not about assessing whether or not someone's pain is real or made up. This is about being together in Jesus. This is about union with Christ. This is about empathy and endurance together. And in the same way that you may be a person who doesn't feel that people are properly empathizing with you, I remind you of the gospel, my friends, that God has called us to endure together in Christ. There is no environment on planet earth where people will be sensitive to your needs all the time. You will have to endure with people who feel don't understand you. You will have to do that. You will have to do that. We are all broken. We are all broken. We must mourn together over the horror that has engulfed and is continuing to embroil our country and the horror within that is embroiling our hearts with judgment, bitterness, accusation, revenge, hatred, and disgust. We must feel those ugly feelings. And we must look at ourselves and ask, where is that ugly feeling coming from? Where? Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want you to know that as I go through this, this is my prayer journal. This is God talking to me. I don't stand over you, lording over you, shaming you, condemning you. But I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I dare not stand up here and speak on such a sensitive issue and have not been with Jesus a whole lot about this. And I'm asking you to do the same thing with me. Be with Jesus about this. Be with Jesus. Quit being with NPR about this. Quit being with Glenn Beck about this. Quit being with CNN about this. Be with Jesus about this. I think we all know what's happened. Do we really need to watch the news four hours a day? Do we need to read 13 articles? Do we really need to do that? All it's doing is filling us with anger. That's all it's doing. I said this last week and I'll say it again. Just because it's true and they are facts does not mean it helps us. Remember when you were a kid and you saw the news 30 minutes a day at night at the dinner table? Remember that? You made it just fine then. We all survived that gulf of media that was missing in our lives. We all survived it. Blessed are the meek. The meek path is rarely used because so many people take the mean path. Using aggressive, militant force to try to expunge the world of racial inequality. That's not the meek path. Utilizing harsh rhetoric 
relentlessly posting shaming articles and op-eds on our social media. It saddens me deeply to see Christians opting for these means to try to bring about change. And I'm seeing it on both sides, everybody, both sides. To be clear, I am not saying that social action is wrong. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I am thankful that we live in a nation in which there is a legal recourse to protest, to legislate, and to speak to power. Some people accuse Paul of being uh, an accessory to slavery. He lived in an empire. There was no such thing as civil rights in first century Rome or Palestine. Nobody had rights. The idea of civil rights didn't come until the Enlightenment 1,500 years later. Paul was living in an empire. You didn't protest in an empire or they crucified you. That's what Rome did. Jesus wasn't the only one who was crucified. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were were, were crucified by the Roman Empire who subverted their government. This is why it was so scandalous for Paul to go around preaching, Jesus is Lord, because everybody said Caesar is Lord. So I am not saying that we should just be quiet and not say anything about injustice and inequality that we see around us. I'm talking about our tone. I'm talking about our attitude. I'm talking about our posture, the condition of our soul, the condition of our soul. I am so thankful that we live in a nation with those rights. I really am. I truly am. I am saying that all of our actions, private and public, must be grounded, as I understand God's Word, in the meekness of our Savior. Inherent in this little sentence, the meek shall inherit the earth, say a few things, powerful things, like this. The world is chaotic and cruel. Some people say meekness doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't seem to. But implicit in that sentence is also this. The world will be restored. It will be. And the people who are going to enjoy the renewed world are going to be the meek, not the violent, not the militant, not the aggressors, not the mean-spirited. They're not getting the new world. The meek are. The meek are. And that world, you'll never need to protest, (laughs) ever. It'll be perfect, full of joy and glory. I also am not speaking about matters of self-defense. The need for law enforcement to keep public order. Or the right of secular governments to defend their citizens with military force. I'm not talking about that. That's not what I'm talking about. Scripturally, there is warrant for this. I believe. I'm talking about you and me. I'm not talking about the United States military. I'm not talking about the NRA. I'm not talking about any political idea that comes to mind. I'm talking about you and me and the way we interact with people. That's what I'm talking about. You and me. How we live our lives. Will we seek to utilize the tools of harmful words, shaming, feeding on media that only affirms our biases, unkindness, viciousness, loathing, and condemnation, or my dear friends, will we love? Do we have any faith whatsoever in Jesus' words or will we continue to functionally reject Jesus' words and say, no, I think I'm going to take the mean path? I can make some noise that way. We must come to terms that this life is filled with sorrow, my friends. It's filled with it. We're not going to diffuse that. Not on this side of eternity. We're not going to. We're not going to. We will have to endure racial tension as long as we live. I'm not saying that things can't change. I'm not saying that people can't change. And I'm sure not saying don't try. All I'm saying is, is that if we think, if our only hope is this world now, we are going to eventually opt for violence, militancy, and hatred. 
But if we can keep isolated in our mind that this world, the way it is now, is not our, is not our home. That we are going to be the receivers of a beautiful, renewed world full of grace and joy and love and peace and beauty that will never, ever, ever be corrupted or defiled, then that gives us hope now. We don't have to be mean to people. We don't have to be ugly and passive-aggressive. We don't have to be hateful. We can be people of love and kindness. And we can mourn when people are ugly and mean. We can mourn that and grieve that. And we can rejoice when people's hearts are grabbed by the Spirit and they're made new creatures in Christ. We can rejoice in that. Will you believe this? A couple more. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Your righteousness, not somebody else's. In the Bible, righteousness is a tricky word to, to, play, to uh, try to interpret. Because righteousness is a, is a coin with two sides. There is personal and corporate holiness on one side. And the other side, there is personal and corporate justice. And you can't separate the two in the Bible. In the Bible, righteousness doesn't mean being a good boy or a good girl and reading your Bible every day. That's an evangelical understanding of righteousness. Biblical righteousness is holiness and justice. And so when Jesus is talking to these impoverished, oppressed people who are begging Rome to take its foot off of their throats, it may be that what Jesus has in mind is social justice for these people. Do you hunger and thirst for justice? So I love how he, he leads off with meekness. Make sure that your posture is humble and loving and kind, but hunger for change. Don't be, don't be cool with the status quo. Just because your neighborhood has beautifully manicured yards, man, don't be, don't be satisfied with the status quo. There are people in Nice, France getting mown down by ISIS. There are police officers in Turkey who were killed by militant people trying to start a, a coup. There are people who are dying in our streets every day in our country. Every day. It's awful. Your world has, Jesus is saying here, your world has got to be bigger than Magnolia Trail or whatever street you live on. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be bigger. All through the Old and the New Testament, the people of God are commanded to take up the plight of the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. I'm not making political statements by saying that. It's just what it's all through the Bible. It's all through our Bible. All through our Bible. God wants us to see the brokenness of our world with unbiased, non-political eyes. He wants us to look over the landscape of ugliness and weep as he weeps. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. We're almost done. If you can stand the scrutiny anymore. Uh, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Hmm. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. We all face a judgment day. All of us do. When we will stand before the living God who will evaluate our lives. What will strongly be considered as God assesses us is how fluent we were in giving mercy. And by implication, mercy is given only to those who don't deserve it. You don't give mercy to people you want to give mercy to. You don't ever want to give mercy. It's people who don't deserve it or people we don't think they deserve it. Mercy. Will you give mercy to a racist? Will you give mercy to a person who denies the existence of racial inequality in America? 
Or will that person be a pariah to you? Will you give mercy to a Black Lives Matter activist? Will you give mercy to people who block traffic on a bridge? Or will you loathe these people? Will you intentionally depend on God's grace so that you can go deep in friendship with a person who has views that are political views that are totally divergent from yours? Is it possible for you to have a deep friendship with someone who has different political views? Don't answer me, please. Think. Is there any room in your theology to go to church and have fellowship with a person, go to a small group of a person who might have a different view on things than you? Or is Jesus' grace really not the center of our relationships? Is it politics? Do we need an echo chamber to really feel edified at church? Guys, I know these things aren't easy. I'm not trying to oversimplify them. There are people who have come to this church who had a very low view of of abortion at one time. We didn't summarily dismiss them or excommunicate them because of that. We all need to learn. There are people in this church who don't have a high view of racial inequality in this country. Here's my question to you. Will you endure with these brothers and sisters in Jesus? Or does that mean they're not saved? Will you? Jesus is relentless, isn't he? This is only the first 10 verses of a whole sermon. This is heavy. I know that there are going to be people who are going to leave today and think, man, that guy is a flaming liberal. I know that because it happened last week. I know that. I'm okay with that. I'm not saying that's what I am. You'll never forget my politics, I promise you. (laughs) But Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, if you can label me, you can negate me. And if you can label me, put me in a box that's putrid to you, then you don't have to listen to me anymore. And that's why they did it to Jesus. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. (laughs) Will you have mercy on people who cause you to relationally recoil? The Apostle Peter once asked how often he should forgive an offending person, and he thought he had a really devout answer for Jesus. Should it be like seven times? And Jesus said, man, 77 times. Keeping in mind that forgiveness isn't a feeling. It's what you do. I say that you are not guilty. I may feel anger, but you're not guilty anymore. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me an apology. You're free. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are are our hearts growing in purity to see the face of Jesus? Or are we feeding on political fodder every day that's only making our hearts harder? more bitter, angrier? Is that stuff like an IV into our soul? I'm not saying stick your head in the sand, ignore what's going on in the world. I'm not saying that. My goodness. If some of us knew our, our Bibles, like people study Facebook and Pokemon Go, my Lord, this world would be different, man. This world would be different. Don't even ask me to explain Pokemon Go. People are falling off cliffs playing Pokemon Go. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're the sons of God. I work hard, my friends. I beg you to believe me. I work hard to avoid even the appearance of being politically motivated. But sometimes God's word intersects with a politically charged issue. This is one of those times. And I cannot be silent on it. I can't be silent on it. The issue of race in America. Look at our church. I don't lead a white church. I cannot be silent on this. 
If I am silent on this, 50% of our church I have no credibility with. And I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I've had people tell me, Chris, and, and, and this to others, listen, I know that there are people who don't get the, the, the two police shootings and they're still like, they're still, there's a lot of murky details on that. But I'm just so thankful that people are empathizing with me because that resonates so deeply with pain in my life, in my parents' life, in my grandparents' life. I, I'm so, I'm, I'm, I, you don't, you put, I've had people tell me, you don't, have to, you don't have to agree with anything. I'm just so glad that you are willing to feel with me. I'm just so glad. I'm just so glad. My God, we can keep going and going and going. I'm asking you, my friends, to go where Jesus has gone. When we say that we follow Jesus and we are being shaped into the image of Jesus, this is what it looks like. We become meek people, merciful people. We hunger for justice and change. We hold our hearts up to God's word and we allow God's word to speak into us. If this is beautiful to you, then you are born again. If this is lovely to you, then you love the things that God loves and only the Spirit can do that in your life. If you're here and you're tripping over those things, you want to talk more about that. Man, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm not going to shame you, talk down to you, I really want us as a church to grab this. This is the gospel, man. This is who we are as a people. The fault line of our relationship should never be left or right. It should be Jesus. And that necessarily means that I'm going to have to endure with people who don't see eye to eye with me. And that means I've got to change or they've got to change. Or, and if neither one of us changes, we continue to endure together in Jesus. It's not simple. It's complex. It's hard. It's not easy. But it's Jesus' way. God, I thank you for today. I pray, Jesus, that you were honored as I attempted to shepherd your people. Help us, Lord. Help us. I pray for grace in every heart today. Grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.